Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books is sponsored by Chloe's Fruit, chloesfruit.com, the cool way to eat fruit. I'm here today with Charles Duhigg. Charles is a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist. He's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, and Smarter, Faster, Better, The Secrets of Being Productive in Life and Business. He went to Yale and Harvard Business School, both with me. He's a frequent contributor to NPR and This American Life and a fantastic speaker for hire. So welcome, Charles. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, let's start with The Power of Habit, which is a completely life-changing book. In the book, you outline in great detail how habit formation works. First, there's a cue, then a routine, and then a reward. And by the way, all the illustrations and example on this process throughout the book and your website and your speeches has now created a habit in me. I see the loop, I start taking notes, and then I feel smarter. Excellent. That's exactly what we had there in mind. There we go. <laughs> Can you explain to listeners the process by which habits are formed? In the yeah, brain? absolutely. And, and the best way to explain it is to talk a little bit about um, where this science came from, which was a laboratory initially at MIT and a woman not named um, Anne Grabeel who is a, an amazing scientist and neurologist, who basically spent her entire career trying to figure out how to get um, little sensors into rats' brains so she could measure neurological activity. And after a while, she figured out how to do this. And what she would do is she would take each rat that had the surgery and she would put them in a maze that looked just like a tea with chocolate at one end. It was like the world's simplest maze. And what she would try and figure out is when you drop a rat in a maze like that, what does it do? Because if you just observe that rat, it looks like rats are like this, the laziest creatures on the face of the planet. It'll take 20 minutes for a rat to find its way up a maze shaped like a T and find the chocolate at the end, right? It's not, not even like, like a maze. But what it will do is it will like scratch the walls and sniff the air and wander around and then double back and eventually find the chocolate. But when now that she could look at the rat's brain activity, what she would see is that the rat was actually thinking hard the entire time, right? When it would scratch the walls, the motor functions of its brain would light up with activity. And when it would sniff the air, the olfactory senses would light up with activity. And what we now know is that this is what's called unmediated learning. This is what children go through when they're trying to learn something without any kind of hypothesis about what's going on. And so she would drop each rat in the maze again and again and again, about 150 times per animal. And what she'd find is that over time, the rat would get faster and faster and faster at finding the chocolate, right? It would almost become a habit. There was this partition that, that you would hear a click and the partition would move and then the rat's free to run through the maze and it would actually find the smallest number of steps it had to take to get to the chocolate. But what was interesting is as that behavior became more and more automatic, the rat started thinking less and less and less. So there was less and less brain activity as the rat got better and better at finding the chocolate. In fact, there was if you looked at a, at a simplified neurological graph of its brain activity, what you would see is almost like the rat's brain had fallen asleep. And what she figured out, Dr. Grabeel, is that 
This is what a habit looks like. When we are in the grip of a habit, it's almost as if our brain turns off. And this is enormously helpful from an evolutionary perspective because it means that we can take that brain activity and we can apply it to other things like inventing fire or spears or aircraft carriers. But but it also means that when we're in the grip of a habit, we've literally stopped thinking about it. And so as a result, we do things automatically without having the capacity to even reflect on what we're doing or realize what we're doing. And as a result, that's why habits are so powerful is because we've literally stopped thinking when they take over. It's like when I'm driving and I like realize I'm like two miles from where I last paid attention. That's exactly right, right? But you haven't crashed the car, right? right You've managed yeah. to navigate the car. And and what's important is that there, this question emerged, like, how do you do that? How do mm-hmm. I do that? Why does our brain know when to go into automatic mode and when to pay attention? And you mentioned this habit loop, which is at the core of this. Our brain has a part of the brain known as the basal ganglia, and every animal has this, that exists basically just to create habits. It's one of the oldest neurological structures in evolution. And what it does is it looks for these cues, right? These triggers that tell the brain, okay, you can kind of shut off now and go into automatic mode. And it pairs those cues with routines or behaviors, what we normally think of as the habit, which you actually do. And the way that the brain knows to remember that pattern for the future is that every single habit has a reward, even if you're not aware of it. Now, there was a woman named Wendy Wood at Duke University, who's at USC now, who followed around about 1,000 people for a year trying to figure out how much of what they did was decisions and how much of what they did were habits. And what she found out is that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit, right? So almost half of what you do every day is a habit. And if we could somehow look at that, like you driving to work or backing your car out of the driveway or reacting automatically when you see your kid with the screen and saying, I told you not to use that screen, (laughs) or your kid with the screen, what we would find is that every single one of those behaviors has some reward associated with it, even if you're not a, even if you're not certain what that is yourself. That makes sense. So let's take an example. Uh, let's say there's a tired mom who always has a glass of wine, maybe a bowl of popcorn, maybe with some chocolate chips poured on top every night when her kids go to sleep. <laughs> no one I know, but let's just say that this happens. And let's say now her, her jeans are not fitting so well. Um, how would you cure her of this habit knowing the steps of this process? Right, knowing the habit loop. Knowing so the habit loop. The first thing I would say is um, it is totally okay to have that habit. <laughs> <laughs> I have many, many bad habits. Sometimes people ask me, like, 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 how do I get rid of bad habits? And the truth of the matter is your brain does not distinguish between like a good habit and a bad habit. It just creates habits, right? It's up to us to decide which ones we like and which ones we don't like. And by the way, having a glass of wine at night, if that's not a – if you enjoy that – that's totally fine, right? That's that's this is a, now becoming therapy. There's nothing wrong with it. But let's say you do say okay. like, okay, I want I wanna like I wanna I wanna cut down on that. So the first thing to realize is what's known as the golden rule of habit change, which is that once a habit is inscribed in your brain, once a neural pathway is associated with that cue, that routine, that reward, it's v- basically impossible to extinguish it, right? We know this from experiments, that if you take rats and you build a habit in that rat, and then you like move that rat to a new environment, and then two years later put them back in the habit environment, the habit will reemerge immediately, because that neural pathway is still there. So now through willpower, you can try and like muscle through that habit, right? Try and like basically ignore it, and that works for a long time for most people, but it's hard, right? So the the much better way, instead of thinking of breaking a habit or killing a habit, is to think of it in terms of changing a habit. Because if you can identify the cue and identify the reward and then find some new behavior that corresponds to that old cue, corresponds to that old reward, 
then it's much, much easier and you're going to be much more successful at changing that habit. So let's take, let's take this habit, for instance. Okay, so what, what would you say the cue is when, um, let's pretend it's you. Who oh, let's just that. pretend. <laughs> like when you, when you get that urge, that craving to have, a, to have a glass of wine and start popping the popcorn, like what's going on? What's the, what's the trigger for that? Um, maybe when all the kids are finally asleep and okay. no one's bothering me anymore. Okay, so it's like the end of the day. The end of the day. And uh, Success. It's over. I've made it through. That's exactly. So, so most cues fall into one of five categories. It's usually a time of day, a particular place, um, the presence of a certain person, a particular emotion, or a preceding behavior that's become ritualized. And so it sounds like for you, it's probably two of those, right? It's probably that it's evening, right? It's kind of like relaxation time. And number two, that you've gone through this ritualized behavior, the kids are down, you get to think about yourself. When Do you find that you're doing the same thing when you, when you do this? Like, is it like you go and watch TV or you read? Like, what do you do when you have the glass of wine and the popcorn? Or is it different from day to day? It's different. Mostly I have to deal with my emails. Okay, okay. So, so it's probably just these two things, right? Time of day, putting the kids down. So now we figured out the cue. Now we have to figure out the reward. What do you think the reward is? Um... Feeling great. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling more relaxed. Um, See, the, and this an is escape. An escape. And so, something different from the whole day. From the so, this is a really interesting thing about rewards, particularly neurological rewards, is that they're oftentimes very hard to figure out exactly what the reward is. In part because. Again, our brain turns off when we're in that habit, so we're not really paying attention to ourselves. But secondarily, most of the things that we think of as rewards are actually a bundle of many different rewards, right? So um, you mentioned that you put chocolate chips on the on the yeah, the popcorn. <laughs> so so some people might say, look, like the 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 reward is that burst of chocolate, right? It tastes good to eat chocolate. Um, or maybe it's a glass of wine. Maybe it's uh, we know that wine, you know, it's alcohol. It helps our. It's a muscle relaxant. It helps us relax very, very quickly. And it could be both of those things, or either of those things. It could also be other things, which is that it could be that you've gotten into this habit where when you have that glass of wine, you're signaling to yourself, oh, like my job is done. I get to allow myself to relax at this point, right? Or it could be that. Um, Maybe when you're having that glass of wine, like like you and your husband have a glass of wine yeah, together, yeah. and you I'm so, often not alone, right? And so like <laughs> no, it sounds terrible. No, no, it's totally. If you're drinking by yourself, I it's have totally a bottle fine. of tequila on the desk, <laughs> and I go to town, and then you just start emailing. Yeah, <laughs> that's when I get all my work done. <laughs> but it could also be that that this has just become a ritualized behavior where like the wine actually doesn't matter. It's that you're having these conversations, right? Yes. And you have some sort of uh, like there's a social reward, and the thing that's that, that is really useful is to figure out what reward is actually driving this habit. Um, and the way that you do that is you simply start identifying rewards and trying to isolate them, right? So so let's say our initial hypothesis for day one was it's um, it's the alcohol that's the reward, the, the relaxation from the alcohol. So maybe like tonight, like you would have like a shot of tequila instead of a glass of wine and see if it like if it gives you that same sense of satisfaction. My guess is no, right? My guess is that like the alcohol plays some role, but not the predominant role because you're drinking wine, you're not like doing shots right. and you're not <laughs> drinking a whole bottle. No, I know, just um, a little, not exa- even a whole glass. And then, and then like tomorrow night, what you might do for instance is not have a glass of wine, just have a glass of water, but sit down with your husband and have the same conversation that you would normally have and see if you feel like as satisfied as you would normally. Do I get the popcorn? You, you can still get the popcorn, okay. yeah, because we're changing one element at a time. And we, it's basically, I have 
hypothesis, right? My hypothesis for today is the reward is social companionship. So I'm going to try and get rid of the other stuff and just really accent social companionship. Or maybe it's that you're hungry and the popcorn is satisfying hunger. So maybe the next night you have an apple instead of having popcorn to try and figure out, like, does that satisfy this craving you have, the craving that's driving this habit? And the truth of the matter is, you're probably not gonna figure out with 100% precision what's going on. But that process of doing experiments, what's really interesting is it will essentially wake up your brain, right? If a habit exists and it has power because our brain turns off, when you start playing with the variables, what you're doing is you're essentially forcing yourself to start pay attention to what's going on when you're in the grip of this habit. This is, this is known in simplified habit reversal therapy as cue and reward awareness. And what we find is that our brain has this kind of magical ability on its own to figure out what's actually going on. And so you'll, in the really just like four or five days, you'll basically kind of work your way into a new behavior that you like more that will correspond to that old cue and deliver something similar to that old reward. Once you, habits are very strong, but they're incredibly fragile, right? Like once you wake up your brain in the process of a habit, you're able to sort of fiddle with its gears very easily. And your brain actually knows how to do this better than your, you do, right? <laughs> we have a, the part of our brain is devoted to this. But the key is to wake up your brain by basically sort of going in and trying to play with the pieces of the habit and giving yourself a chance to, to really understand what's going on instead of just going along mindlessly. All right. Well, as I, as I sit here tonight with my glass of water and an apple, <laughs> I, I will email you and let you know how, yes, it's, good, how it's working. Good, good. You, can t- you can try the tequila one first to see if... Uh... <laughs> um, so in both your books, which are so well-written, obviously, oh, thanks. I, mean, I mean, they've gotten so many accolades and everything. I don't, you don't need mine, but just, it, they were amazing. Um, what I liked so much is that you use all these really relatable stories, one person's story after another, so it's not so scientific, but everything is, is really just made clear through the story. So where do you find all these studies and how do you even get the details of, you know, the man who's walking around the neighborhood and can't draw a map of his house and yet he goes outside with no memory and can find his way back to the couch or the, um, you know, the, the son of drug addicts who now takes over being a manager at Starbucks. Yeah. Ha- these stories have such granularity and detail and they're so relatable. Where do you come, where do you find them all? How do you It's compile? just a huge amount of reporting. So, so the, the, um, actually the story you mentioned about Travis, the kid at Starbucks who, whose parents were drug addicts. I um I can't even remember how I came. I think I was talking to one person, like an academic, and I said, like, what company is great at teaching its employees? And they said Starbucks. And then I think I called, like, I think I just started randomly calling Starbucks managers and, like, managers of Starbucks stores and asking them, like, who is someone who Starbucks has, like, changed their life? And pretty early in the process, someone mentioned this kid, Travis, out in California, and so that one, that one, I mean, there was probably like four or five days of making phone calls before I found Travis. But the rest of it, you know, like for every, so every chapter in each of my books probably has three or four stories in it. And I probably evaluate 15 to 18 stories wow. to find those three or four. And it's really just a process of calling people and saying like, doing interviews with academics and then saying some version of like, you know, what's your what's your favorite story to tell at a bar over beers? Or when you're teaching this material in class, what's the what's the anecdote that you find yourself coming back to again and again and again? And you just sort of like it's the most frustrating process on earth because if if an interview is going really well, it should feel 
sort of awful in the middle of it, right? Because there's no, because you're, you're basically asking someone else to think on your behalf, think for you and to give you something where you don't even know what you're, what you want. But if you just spend enough time making phone calls, it works. Eventually someone says like, oh, you know, that reminds me of this like story involving like this one airplane flight, Qantas Flight 32. And then you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. And like an airplane and, and like, you know, they almost crashed, but then they didn't. Like that's something that as a reporter I hear and I'm like, I can absolutely tell that story because anytime a plane almost crashes, there's all these documents associated with it. And in this case, no one died. So I can actually call up the captain and it turns out he even wrote a book about it. But it's just this process of like constantly asking other people for advice and suggestions on anecdotes. And then once they're giving them, trying to get all the reporting that I can about them. Tell me about, now that you have all the stories, how do you outline the books? How do you take the 15 stories? Do you have sticky notes all over your desk? Like, what's it like? What does it look like for you? So so what I do is um, I write, so for my two books so far, I write them chapter by chapter, which means I'll write one chapter, I'll send it to my editor, and then and then I'll start on the next chapter. So I don't have I don't have to deal with like an overarching um, arc as much as as just thinking about like ten thousand words. And um, you know I go through and I basically figure out the three or four stories. I figure out the idea I want to explain, right? Like what is the central idea that I want to convey, and then what are the three or four stories that allow me to do that to segment it into interesting aspects of that. Um, sort of an evolution of that idea. And then what I'll do usually, and this changes from chapter to chapter, but like usually what I'll do is I'll write my editor on this guy named Andy Ward, a long letter that's like totally like messy, but just (laughs) says like, here's all the things that I learned and here's how I'm thinking about it. And just the act of like, right. And I don't use any notes, right. I'm just literally like sort of writing from my, from memory. And the act of doing that helps me figure out like what the, what the basic structure is. But once I have that, and me and Andy will talk about it and sort of figure out like this part doesn't work or this part is actually saying the same thing as this part, so you don't really need it. Once I have that, then I go, and I usually use note cards, and I'll go through all of my reporting materials and I'll basically write each detail on its own note card. And then I arrange the note cards into piles based on what belongs with what. And, and that allows me to sequence details and facts, right? So now I, now I have a sense of like how things start and where they're going and when they get interrupted by other stories and why they get interrupted that way. And, and then from that, I oftentimes start writing the actual thing. And I have to figure out usually what the lead is, what the opening is before I can really like start leaning into it. And, and that process works. Now, what's interesting is that the end product will only end up using, you know, like when I write those note cards, I might have like 150 or 200 note cards per chapter. And I probably end up using like 30 or 40 of them appear in the chapter. And I don't know which 30 or 40 are going to appear in the chapter. It's just that once you start writing, you begin figuring out like, oh, this whole block of note cards that I spent, you know, a day and a half writing and like three weeks reporting, I don't even need. Um, but but th- that process... Ultimately, like, ultimately, if a piece of writing works, it works, I think, because of the structure. Because somebody has thought about a beginning, a middle, and an end. And they've created something compelling that drags you through the chapter, right? Because otherwise, at any point, there is something more important than reading Mm. to do. And, 
and some usually that's suspense, right? Or very often that's suspense. You can say like, you know, like little did he know that he would be dead twelve hours later, <laughs> and you want to find out how he's going to die. But some of the best writing actually doesn't have suspense at all. It's just that there is something that there is a hinted at forward motion that compels you to continue reading. Like I'm reading this book right now, um, Rachel Kushner's new book called The Mars Room, where like it's it's a woman who's in prison. And really all you know about her is she's in prison and then she starts telling her life story. And her life story is like just so sad and tragic and depressing. And like the fact that she's in prison, it's not enough suspense to keep you going. But it's clear that the author has thought about the forward momentum. She's thought about rewarding you for sticking with the book. And that's what you want to convey in a chapter or in a book. Like I have thought about this structure well enough that – you you believe me when I make you a promise that if you keep going, if you if you think what you're reading is kind of interesting, if you keep on reading, it's going to get better. It's going to come to some resolution, because as humans, we always want we always want that forward narrative momentum. And as long as you can signal that you're providing it, the person will continue reading. It's so interesting. Yeah, I love that. that's so cool. I mean, that's my theory. I, I, there's probably I, other theories. I think your theory is working. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I liked reading how you will not, I didn't like that you were struggling, but I liked reading that you admitted you were struggling to finish your first book and, um, uh, deal with your kids and deal with your life and stay up late and not get everything done and not take the vacations you wanted. And, um, you had, you had said that in the context of trying to find an expert, which eventually led to your next book, right. but how do you get it all done? How have you used the tips from your productivity book in your own life? So, so the biggest, the biggest insight from Smarter, Faster, Better is that there is, there's this real difference between busyness and productivity, right? And that wasn't always true. In, in fact, until about the 1970s, it, it wasn't true at all. Like if, if in 1956, just to use a random word, if you were busy, odds are pretty good that you were also productive, right? That's not necessarily true for all professions, but for most of America, if you um, worked in a factory, and a lot of people did, or if you were a delivery person, then every hour in which you were busy was also an hour in which you were productive because they were somewhat synonymous. The society was built to make them synonymous. That's what the Industrial Revolution is. But then the Knowledge Revolution comes along in sort of the world that we live in now where you could spend an entire day replying to emails and really get nothing important done. In fact, you've done anti-important stuff because as lo- as the next day you're going to have even more emails to deal with, right? Because they become self-perpetuating. And so what's really important is to recognize that there is this difference between busyness and productivity. And then the question becomes, so how do we figure out how to be productive and not just be busy? And the answer is that throughout history, it has usually come down to thinking more deeply, right? Thinking more deeply about what is actually important to get done right now. What are your actual goals? Are you prioritizing things correctly? Are you setting aside and ignoring the things that are distractions that are simply busyness and instead of focusing on the things that are going to move the needle for you? Which means knowing what the needle is, right? Knowing what makes you happy or what makes you satisfied or what what you really actually want to get done. And so one of the things that I do is I try and be much more deliberate about that now. Um, I was a reporter at the New York Times for about 11 years and and then decided to leave the Times as a staff writer and become a magazine writer, in part because I really wanted to write magazine pieces. I wanted to write long-form pieces. And the busyness of the New York Times was so overwhelming that it was really hard for me to, to find the space to do that. Similarly, I give a ton of speeches right now. And... and you know how do, I need to figure out like how, 
what is my mental model for for the time I spend giving speeches, which is um, it, it like lets me sort of talk to new people and introduce these ideas to new people. It's also like an important sort of financial source of, of income that supports the writing that I do. And so, so I'm very deliberate in sitting down and saying like, what are the things that are important to me? How do I prioritize those? And then how do I get rid of everything else? Like most people who email me, they don't get an email back. I don't, I, if I send more than, if I spend, send more than 20 emails in a day, it, it's like, I, that's, that's a failure because mm. I want to send less and less and less emails unless it's something that's important to me. Otherwise it's just other people putting stuff on my to-do list. And so like, I think very deliberately about that stuff and, and in doing so, I think hopefully become more productive. I feel like I need you to come in my life and just go through every area. Like, I just need to apply the Duhigg model to everything. And, like, kids, I think, are a good example of this, right? Because, like, there is this very easy, busy thing that you can get into where you're simply spending time with your children but not actually interacting with your children, right? And, And there's an interesting question that I don't know the answer to, which is, is it more important just to, like, hang out with your kids for large quantities of time or small or spend small quantities of time with them but have these deep conversations. And I actually don't know the answer. I mean, up till now basically what I've done is is small quantities of time and try and interact with them a lot. Um, my wife is going on sabbatical and we're going to leave the country for 6 months. Oh my gosh. And like I'm basically going to do the opposite, which is be with my children all the time. Um, which seems a little <laughs> terrifying to be honest, but like, but like, and, and like, I'm kind of curious to find out like which one, which one actually matters more. My guess is that that quantity of time instead of quality of time actually is more important. Quantity, just being around. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that that like, I think that there's a satisfaction and a reward that comes from that. But I think the point is that that it's very infrequent that we get the chance to think that way. Mm-hmm. Usually we just sort of accident into like what our relationship is with time and our kids. And, but I, I think that people who are the most successful are the ones who spend time thinking and asking themselves those questions. Um, yeah, this whole tip on giving can, in your book, sorry, let me start up. in smarter, faster, better. You say that giving team members more control empowers them, makes the whole team function better do you think this can apply to your kids or should you not give them the power? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, what we know is like the best form of parenting is frankly giving, giving kids more and more control. Right. I mean, like it, it, there's a a friend of mine, um, has a book coming out called like, um, I just blurbed it and I can't remember the name now. Um, uh, like being a happier parent or happier parenting. I'll figure out what it is. Um, Who's the it, author? It's um, it's KJ who who writes for the New York Times. Whose last name, of course, I can't actually. Pronounce. That's okay. But but I'll we'll Google I'll, it. Yeah yeah. I'll, we'll put it on your website. Um, <laughs> and like her whole theory on basically like how you should take siblings who like fight with each other is like just let them fight. Like it's not like they're not fighting with you. They're fighting with each other. Like let them work it out and like just ignore your children when they're like arguing with each other, which I think is pretty good advice, right? Like, because it's hard for the parent. In fact, me and my wife were doing it in the car yesterday and it like makes you crazy because you just want to be like, stop doing that. But like, there's no situation in which like people in the real world are fighting with each other and having like a referee comes in, like makes it less likely that they're going to not fight the next time. Right? Like the whole point of kids is to develop this 
internal locus of control, this concept that they control the world around them as opposed to the world controlling them. Because we know that an internal locus of control is is associated with much greater success in life. And, and that's one of the reasons why, for instance, when your child does well, you it's you don't tell them like, oh, you're so smart. Right. You tell them, oh, you worked so hard. It's because you want to reinforce this belief that they control the outcomes that it, that it influence them. And similarly, I think when you're when you're parenting, it's about trying to teach your children that they actually have control over all the things that they might not suspect they have control over, right? Like, like we everything about life when you're a kid, you're powerless and it's super frustrating. But oftentimes, the reason you're powerless is because no one's taught you how to seize that power. Right? No one's taught you that you can go up and you can basically like get the adults to trust you to do whatever you want if you like are polite and you seem like mature. And so if you teach them how to do that, you're teaching them how to succeed. I like how you are so methodical in how you approach your parenting. Like in the book, how you were like, <laughs> after you went on vacation with your kids and they got used to having dessert on vacation and that right. was the best part, how you came back and you're like, now we have to mix up the reward. Right, now right. we can, now we're going to give them a, a treat, but it's going to be at two in the afternoon. And it's like, they're like these little lab rats. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I would say it is 50% methodical and then 50% like I'm distracted and all I want to do is just like watch TV and I'm like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Just like you're driving me crazy right now. <laughs> um, in Smarter, Faster, Better, you have a goal-setting flowchart, which uh, starts with stretch goals, like say writing a book or potty training your kid or or something. Can you give a quick example of, a, of one of your flowcharts and how that can make Yeah, sure. So there's this basic idea in goal-setting, which is – there are two opposing tensions in in setting goals. Because setting goals is really really important because people tend to do tend to do one of two things that's kind of wrong. The first is that they tend to set these very very practical goals that they can definitely get accomplished, and and oftentimes that's because of this thing called a need for cognitive closure that it feels good to like get things done. That's also why we do emails, right? You're like, oh man, I got all my e- my emails done without like stepping back to think like, was that worth the time I spent on it? The second mistake that people oftentimes make, and not a mistake, but something that can lead you awry, is that they 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 might have a to-do list that has like, you know, 30 things on it, right? They basically use a to-do list as a memory aid rather than a prioritization device. And it's good to have a memory aid. You should not try and keep everything in your head because it'll make you crazy. But if you have a list of 30 things, that, sh- that shouldn't be your to-do list. That should be your memory aid, right? The place where you list everything so you don't have to remember it. So what the research shows is that you want to take these two instincts um, to try and do everything and to try and be really practical, and you want to marry them together, and you should be really deliberate about it. So the first thing you should do is you should figure out what is your stretch goal, right? Like, what is this big thing that you actually want to get done? If if you only have a month left to live, right, like, what's the one thing that you really want to get done within the next month? For that matter, what's the one thing that you really want to get done this week? The thing that maybe you've been putting off or the thing that if you get it done, you'll feel so much better or could be transformative. What is your stretch goal, this big ambition? The problem with the big ambition is that it's overwhelming. We don't actually know where to start and we'll, and we'll, we'll waste a lot of time. So in addition to having a stretch goal and identifying what that is and writing that down, what researchers recommend is that you then write down a to-do list that's just made up of three things, right? The most important thing to get done today, the second most important thing to get done today, and if you happen to do those two things, 
what you would get done tomorrow, right? So just three things are on your to-do list. And you can pull that off of that list of 30, like to, to, but just identify three things. And the, and the how do we make that into a plan, right? How do we take those three things and make them into something tangible? What researchers talk about is just using a process. And one of the most popular is this thing called SMART goals, right? And SMART is an acronym. It means, you know, specifically what do you want to accomplish? How are you going to measure success? Is it achievable? Do you have the resources you need? Like, like, are you going to be able to close your door for an hour so you can actually work on it? What's the timeline? When are you going to start this? When are you going to stop it? It, it takes like 30 seconds to go through S-M-A-R-T for those three things on your list. But once you do that, you pretty much have like a concrete plan, right? Like when you wake up the next morning, you know exactly what to do. And it's much easier to start because you know what to do. And so what researchers say is identify those stretch goals. Know what your big goal is. And then take a stretch goal that maybe is like something that's going to take you a month or a year and break it down into three smart goals for today. And eventually you're going to get there, right? Like we waste a lot of time doing stuff we don't have to do. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing because it feels good to get it done. And we waste a lot of time waiting to start doing the things that are important. If you can collapse those two things, you're going to get to that stretch goal much faster. But you say, you know, motivation becomes easier when we transform a chore into a choice and doing so gives us a sense of control. And that's great. But what about all these things I have to get done? Like we have to get done, like paying the bills or filling out school forms or some of the emails we can't just ignore. Sure. Absolutely. What some do of them. Do? So, okay. So, so, so let's take today for you. Like what's, what's something. <laughs> I don't mean to make this no, 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 about no, no. me. No, no, no. I'm but, using but, me as an example like, like to help everybody what's, everywhere. What's something that you feel like you have to do today that all things being equal, you would rather not do? Um, I, I can't even think what I have to do today. Um, or like this week. Um, I have to order like camp supplies for my son's sleep. Okay. Camp. Okay. You have to order camp. And do you enjoy doing that or is it no. like, Okay. So, so how do you take that chore and make it into a choice? So there's a couple of ways to do it, right? Like, first of all, you can decide when to schedule it, right? Instead of saying like, you're like, be like, look, like after I have my glass of wine and my, my, <laughs> my uh, apple, right. My apple or, or my, or maybe, maybe what you're going to do is you're going to reward yourself tonight with the glass of wine and the popcorn and the chocolate chips after you order the camp supplies. And so that way, like, you're kind of choosing, like, like I actually deserve that popcorn and chocolate chips and glass of wine because, like, I'm getting these, like, stupid camp supplies out of the way. But then the other thing you can do is you can kind of decide, like, there, there's probably in those camp supplies, there's probably, like, some part of it that's a little bit fun and some part of it that's not, right? Like... Like I've, I like ordering what for my kids, I like ordering like all the technical stuff, like which knife should they get mm-hmm. and like stuff like that. Maybe you enjoy ordering like the clothes or like, so like, like decide whether you're going to do that first or last. That's the part of the chore. That's your favorite part of the chore. Are you going to do it first or are you going to do it last? Are you going to use it as a reward or not? You're finding these little choices that you can make and it's going to, and it's so much easier to start, right? Because once you've sort of asserted your control over it then it's not, it's just not as hard to start. I'm not saying it's going to be like your favorite part of the day, but you have to do it. And the question is, how do you make it as painless as possible? How do you make it as fast as possible? We know that by making these little choices, it's actually going to be faster and less, less unpleasant than you think it would be. Email is another great example. Like the way that I do email is that I, I open, I like, if I have, 
you know, like I go through my inbox, if there's five responses I have to write, I'll hit reply to all of them and they're all on my desktop. And I'll go into each one and I'll just write like half a sentence. And it, it's always a choice. Like, like they'll be like, hey, can you have lunch? And I'll be like, sure, but I like to eat Indian food. Or, you know, um, can you can you do this thing for me? And I'll say like, no, I can't do that thing for you. I'll make some choice. Because once I've got the choice in a half sentence in the email, I can write the rest of the email around it. It's really easy to do that. Like, hey, Jim, thanks so much for your note. But it's the choice that's the hard part. And once the choice is on the screen, the rest of it just like zips through. Hmm. Okay. You, you can try it. And tell I'll, me I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, can we talk for just a minute about what it was like working for the New York Times? Sure. For all those years. Like, what, yeah. tell just how, just give us a little. Paint, paint a picture for us of what it was like and how you dealt with the office and the deadlines and the reporting and what you loved the most. And So most of the stuff that I worked on was long investigative projects. Um, and so I would spend, you know, months working on something before it appeared in print, um, which was great and, and, and is actually like a, a weirdly unique skill within a newsroom um, because most people love writing stuff on a regular basis. Um, and there is something super satisfying about having like, a story, they're called dailies when you need to write a story that appears the next day in the paper. Um, like, that's very satisfying because, like, it can't be that great, like, right? Like, you're like, it, it, you're, you're better than anyone who's faster than you, and you're faster than anyone that's better than you. And so it feels very, very good to, like, get a story out into the world. Um, I don't know how much there else there is to say. You know, it's the, um, it's a newspaper that everyone reads, and so. As a result, you you have to be very, very careful about getting everything right. But at the same time, um, surprisingly few people read most articles. And so oftentimes you'd be surprised how frequent, like on the most emailed list, how few people have actually emailed those articles um, to get them on there. Hmm. So I don't know. I liked it. It was, oh, okay. a, it was a good place to be. And what was it like winning a Pulitzer Prize? Like, tell me the whole thing. Where you were? Was, did you find out by phone, by email? Like, yeah, the whole I was. Thing. I was on. I was in the car driving back, um, or I was. I was. I was in a taxi um, driving back from the airport to my house on a Friday because they they always announce the prizes on a Monday and and then they let the papers know on a Friday who's won. And I got a call from my editor. And, like, I wasn't certain that I'd heard him right. Like, I almost called him back, and I was like, wait, wait, I just want to make sure. You said that I won, right? Like, I just wanted to, like, <laughs> but, like, um, yeah. I mean, the thing is that, like, this is, sounds like a cheesy thing to say, and it is great, and I am so appreciative to have won the pri- the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's, like, it's, it is a nice thing, and it's a nice accolade, but compared to like everything else, it's it's one small part of like a life, right? Like, so compared to actually writing those stories and feeling like those stories are working and feeling like those stories make change in the world, um, the prize is a nice recognition of that. But like the stories are m- more satisfying in some respect. And and you know, and I won five years ago now. Um, it is really nice because it's just something. It's like a shorthand that you can use with people so that they know that you're a good writer. But the truth of the matter is that, like, within most of the world of media, everyone's like, "Well, what have you done in the last six months?" <laughs> and I've got these like two stories I'm working on right now that like are sort of like stressing me all the time. And so, hopefully, those if those stories turn out well, then I'll probably feel as satisfied as when can I can. You share them. what they're about. Um, yeah, one one of them is about Silicon Valley and sort of um, this character within Silicon Valley, and another one is about 
um, trying to understand why the nation is so angry right now and kind of what are the what do we know about how anger functions? Huh. So that's fascinating. Hopefully they'll yeah, hopefully they'll be good. And are you we'll thinking see. about another book? I am, I am. I'm supposed to talk to my book editor later today actually about the next book, which um I will hopefully figure out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep you posted. Um, and just to close, do you have any advice to aspiring authors or journalists? Yeah. So here's what I would say. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, obviously, like, read as much as you can, right? And, like, read people who think about the structure of writing. Like, John McPhee's latest book, Draft Number 9, is kind of amazing in that respect because he thinks a lot about how writing works. And just reading good writers. Like, I think that... Um, like, uh, the Jennifer Egan once said this thing that she said, like, the most important, not the most important, but an important thing that writers can do is to, like, read, to protect what you read, right? So that you're reading other good writers, which I don't adhere to all the time because sometimes I read just trash because I love it. But, but I think that is helpful. But I think the most important thing is to figure out, like, why do you like the things you like, right? There, there, something you read that you like, there is some secret code about how they did it that made you like it. Mm-hmm. And and if it's really good, it's not obvious, right? So so the the best writers obsess about structure, but by the time you read what they've written, the structure is not obvious at all. In fact, it's very hard to understand the structure because they've gotten so deep into that structure that it almost occurs at like a metastructural level. That does not mean though that there isn't a structure there and that they haven't thought about structure. And so for someone like me, like structure is the most important thing or one, or one of the most important things because, because that's how I get people addicted to the, to, the, to the writing. And that's also why I love the writing that I love to read is because there are people who think about structure, who take care of the, the reader, who like want to entertain me. Um, and other people, other people love different kinds of writings for different re- reasons. But oftentimes we read and we absorb without actually – looking too closely or paying attention to like what all the like the wires and the the tricks are that the person are using but those wires and tricks that's actually how you learn to do that thing right so so if you love you know Gretchen Rubin who writes in a very very different way than I do like like studying how she actually does it like sometimes I actually go through a book and I'll like I'll create an outline of, of what I think the structure was for the writer sometimes I'll only infrequently have I done this. I'll actually rewrite. I'll, I'll take an article and I'll actually write the words of that article out on a piece of paper, just to try and figure out like why they made the choices they did about how those words fit together. And I read what what writers write about writing all the time and think about it a lot. So I think that like at the end of the day, like writing is. Writing is all about an act of making choices, right? There's a lot of creativity and you just hope and pray that like you have like some clever way of like getting into something. But most of what makes it up is making choices, making very deliberate choices. And if you understand the choices that your favorite writers are making, then it tells you what, what library of choices are available to you. And most people go through the world look, reading things and not understanding that there were a thousand other ways to write that. But there are, and when you can identify those thousand other choices, that's when suddenly you can start making them too. That, and I would say, like, the more reporting you do, always the better.
Wow. Well, thank you. That was amazing. I feel like I've learned so much. I have a whole new plan for my own life. I hope the listeners out there feel like they can apply it to their lives, or else it's just been a self-serving interview. Um, thank you for coming Thanks on. Thanks for having me. And just a reminder, this has been sponsored by Chloe's Fruit, the cool way to eat fruit. Check them out at chloesfruit.com. Thank you. Thank you.